This is History 605, where we talk about everything from Crazy Horse to cyberspace. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, state historian for the state of South Dakota. And today, joining me on the podcast is Jerome Green, the author of a new book, All Guns Fired at One Time, Native Voices at Wounded Knee, 1890. Jerry uh, uh, wrote the book in uh, 2020, came out last year, kind of during the, the pandemic and so forth. Today, Jerry lives in Denver, Colorado. He's a U.S. Army veteran. He attended Black Hill State and USD before earning a graduate degree at the University of Oklahoma. Jerry also taught at Haskell Indian Nations University in Lawrence, Kansas, and had a long career with the National Park Service as a historian with, with them. He's the author of many books, and we welcome Jerry to History 605. Well, thank you very much. It's my pleasure, great pleasure to be here with you today. Jerry, the topic, certainly the Wounded Knee Massacre, is one of the darkest days in American history and has cast a long shadow over uh, the United States' uh, 19th and 20th century history and South Dakota history and tribal relations and so forth, and has prompted bills up until... I think in Congress there's bills circulating uh, as we speak. But there are also considerations taken up uh, early on in the 1920s and 30s and so forth. The 7th Cavalry, in fact, uh, debates the actions that its members took that day and the meaning of the Medals of Honor and so forth conferred upon some of them. In all of that, now we have your book, Jerry. And I wonder if you could share what this book might bring to this 130-year-old memory and history of that uh, dark day. Well, uh, let's say that uh, I, I guess my attempt, uh, I, I did a book several years ago on uh, Wounded Knee called American Carnage, uh, 1890, Wounded Knee, 1890, that was an in-depth, uh, over, uh, not an overview, but an in-depth uh, study of what happened at Wounded Knee and the massacre, uh, clear up to... Uh, into the 20th century, well into the 20th century, when there was a, a fight for uh, reparations in Congress and so forth. I decided uh, after that I had uh, explored Indian accounts. I've always been uh, captivated by Native accounts of their engagements uh, in the West with the soldiers. And I used a good portion of them, as you know, in the uh, the book American Carnage, and uh, so I thought that uh, uh, talking with uh, officials at the Historical Society that there might be an interest in uh, pulling these together in one uh, volume, and uh, to provide a single volume with all the known personal Native accounts of Wounded Knee by uh, survivors and witnesses together with uh, certain other pertinent materials related directly or bearing on those accounts. And hence, the, uh, this uh, volume materialized uh, over uh, or a couple of few years after my uh, American Carnage book. You know, it, I mean, there's a long list of accounts in here by the, by the survivors. Black Elk, is is uh, in here, I think, at least once, yes. And who are the ones that um, might be best to start with, I guess? Uh, which which accounts 
might be most emblematic of the event? For the Lakotas, we should mention the Wounded Knee kind of stood as an exclamation point to all that they had endured from the 1850s and 60s forward, I think. And for them, what happened at Wounded Knee uh, was truly cataclysmic to their relatively uh, small society in something of an existential way. And, and uh, this book uh, wants to pre present their recollections in their own words, the recollections and reflections of <clears throat> Lakota participants, uh, but it also hopes to present the views of Native scouts, mm -hmm. that is, those who served with the Army, right. as well as non-Native uh, medical personnel who took part in or who uh, witnessed and uh, reported, say, on other elements, related elements regarding what happened. Um, at Wounded Knee, as well as in the uh, hospital hospital uh, facility in the church for the medical treatment and so forth. So that's essentially what uh, I wanted to present, uh, both the, the early views and the later views. And there's some distinction between those, if you'd care to talk about those. Yeah, I would. I think that's an interesting point is... So the earlier views probably more focused on just the shock of the event or were in the echo of that shock. Whereas, Absolutely. Whereas, yeah, the earliest uh, accounts, uh, Native accounts, um, I see them in two categories, essentially. Uh, the first ones uh, talked about and reflected the personal uh, family elements of, of the Wounded Knee tragedy for posterity among all the people, as well as for the uh, edification of non-Indians, as it turned out. So the very earliest views are the ones of the direct survivors. Mm -hmm. And I would point out that most of them, or many of them, uh, came from uh, uh, combat veteran Indians who were in the Wounded Knee uh, uh, massacre took uh, took part in uh, protecting their people, but as well as uh, uh, some of the women who survived. And I should point out that most of the adult males uh, did not survive. And so a lot of the accounts uh, that uh, came forward in the later years were by women who were witnesses and uh, some participants in the village. The, uh, those were the early accounts. And the later accounts that appeared in, say, the early 1900s, and maybe especially those during the 1930s, there's another surge of accounts that came forward. And they reflected, uh, at that time, efforts to gain some kind of monetary compensation for the losses at Wounded Knee. Right. So there's kind of an interesting disparity here in the, uh, in the kinds of accounts and what motivated the accounts. And the audience. Uh, the first to yeah. uh, explain the tragedy that had happened to them 
and uh, secondarily for seeking compensation of some kind for it. Right. And, uh, well, perhaps we should go back a little bit and just kind of one run through what what for the audience that may not be as familiar with the story as you and I are. What what is this? What is wounded knee? Why did it happen? And who was involved? I guess can you just kind of give us quick two to five minute kind of synopsis? The Great Sioux Reservation is the center post of this uh, discussion right now. <clears throat> following the Indian Wars of the 1860s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, the uh, Lakotas, uh, as well as uh, some of their subordinate uh, uh, related people, tribes, mm-hmm. uh, signed in 1868 the Treaty of Fort Laramie in Wyoming. And uh, that established for them what we call the Great Sioux Reservation. And this was a, a huge uh, portion of land that, that bordered the Missouri River on the west side and uh, extended, in, a, in essence, it, it included and comprised the western half of the present state of South Dakota. Right. And in, uh, in later years, as Whites moved further west and uh, wanted to move into areas that were included in the Great Sioux Reservation. The uh, the Sioux, <clears throat> excuse me, the Sioux resisted this, and uh, but nonetheless, the government uh, tried to uh, accommodate and uh, met with the people several times. And finally, in 1889, they met and uh, the government secured what they called the 1889 Sioux Land Act, which reduced the Great Sioux Reservation to uh, to rather one rather than one large uh, reservation. It was reduced to five subordinate smaller reservations. And it opened the intervening lands to white settlement. And uh, this uh, this was a disastrous uh, move for the Sioux. And it triggered a lot of uh, negative uh, results, including uh, it, it ultimately reduced their beef issue, which had been... Uh, uh, coming since the uh, 70s on the reservation. And uh, uh, and it was accompanied by a lot of uh, natural elements that uh, affected the people uh, disastrously, including uh, a drought, mm-hmm. uh, massive drought, uh, many sicknesses, uh, that uh, racked the people, uh, especially in the winter of 1889. Uh, there were great uh, sicknesses of influenza and whooping cough and uh, measles, pneumonia. Mm. They all appeared on the reservation, or what was left of the reservation. And all of these uh, combined 
to bring such uh, dissatisfaction and discomfort among the people that they turn to transcendent transcendent help mm-hmm. in the form of the ghost dance, right. which had been uh, practiced in some of the Western territories. And uh, they adopted the uh, precepts of the ghost dance as a means to somehow salvage their lives and existence as they knew them. Um, the elements of the ghost dance, uh, which consisted mainly of, of dancing dances uh, that were strange to whites, and uh, and lots of whites that, that populated the territory uh, saw them as threatening, and they felt that the white settlement and settlers were going to be somehow hurt in the surrounding country. Mm-hmm. And that uh, ultimately brought on uh, a request for troops to be sent, and uh, the rest, in in effect, is the Wounded Knee campaign that resulted in such dire tragedy for the Lakota people. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of mysticism that's going on that's really misinterpreted by many of the whites, I think. And we have a map in the archives at the Historical Society that... Uh, notes the troop movements in western South Dakota in this time, and they call it the Messiah War, was the term that the U.S. Army seemed to use for for the the ghost dancers. Yes, yeah, the Messiah was uh, God or Christ was going to return and, and uh, save the people somehow. Right. And this is not unusual. People in, in this stage of existence... Um, often turn to deities uh, for assistance and help. And so this, there's nothing really unusual for this, but it was so uh, profoundly reported in the press that it drew an awful lot of attempt, attention. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and some of the fears of the uh, settlers in the region just became so inordinate that uh, the government did succumb and send troops, and uh, that was the, the final uh, lead-up to what happened at Wounded Knee. Right. So it seems to me that there's a, uh, an environment of a great deal of misunderstanding, fear, tension, um, and recent history of battles that come to blows and uh, things get out of hand, and this is just kind of a, a recipe for what could be disaster without strong leadership to, well, keep, kind of keep a lid on things as, as this group of people that is moving down from one reservation to another where they've been invited to, to uh, come and join Red Cloud. I wonder if, as you go through the, the testimonies that you put in the book, are there any references to the ghost dance? Yes, I believe there are. Okay. They, uh, that was uh, the fundamental uh, reason that the troops were there Right. And, uh, but the odd thing was uh, the people didn't understand what was happening when the troops uh, confronted them. Right. Uh, when uh, the troops over uh, west of Wounded Knee proper, a few miles, uh, actually contr- confronted them on the uh, uh, 28th of December. 
and uh, ushered them over to the Army camp at Wounded Knee, uh, along Wounded Knee Creek, mm-hmm. about oh, eight or nine miles uh, west of where they were confronted. They were surprised at this, but probably not. Uh, it was not unexpected among them. Uh, they certainly had uh, ways to find out what was going on. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it was a, it was a, something of a surprise when they were ushered over there and then surrounded, and more troops were brought in that evening along with uh, Hotchkiss guns, mm-hmm. uh, which they didn't uh, even know about. Uh, there were, I believe, uh, four Hotchkiss guns. Uh, two had come out earlier, but two more were sent from, from Pine Ridge the agency and uh, reached there the night during the night of the of the 28th and 29th of December and uh, that uh, when they heard the guns being mounted that night in the dark uh, I'm sure they were uh, privy by then to uh, what possibly could occur and it must have scared the the heck out of them mm-hmm. to know that uh, they were possibly being targeted in that way. Yes, and so the the next morning when the order goes out to turn in their firearms for the from the U.S. Army soldiers, the Seventh Cavalry soldiers, to turn in their firearms, or for the natives to turn in their firearms, you can um, you can imagine that very tense situation. And when one gun goes off. Uh, which harkens to the title of your book. I'm wondering if you can um, maybe illuminate that particular testimony that you share about where that quote comes from. The title of your book, All Guns Fired at One Time, is in quotes um, from one of the testimonies, and I'm wondering if you can kind of use that as a way to describe the incident from the perspective of the person who said that. That was uh, from a, a, a man named Dog Chief, who was there in the uh, in the council area at the time? Mm-hmm. Um, the morning of the 29th, uh, Colonel uh, um, the Colonel commanding the troops had uh, requested that all the men join uh, him in a convocation at the uh, at the designated spot uh, on a kind of a level ground. Um, uh, from their camp, which was uh, to the uh, southwest of that level ground. And the men uh, went up there and uh, and uh, uh, the colonel uh, talked to them and uh, tried to uh, explain what uh, he wanted to do. Now, unbeknownst to uh, the people, the plan, as we've only learned <clears throat> in fairly recent years, was that uh, they were to be disarmed and then marched down to Gordon, Nebraska, where they were to be put on trains, uh, that is, to uh, remove them to Omaha, to get them out of the region where uh, the citizens as well as the Army feared that uh, something might uh, uh, erupt uh, if they were not removed. 
and that was the initial plan. Okay. But that, of course, went awry uh, in that council area, as uh, I think most of the uh, accounts in the book uh, allude to. But the man, is, again, is a dog chief, uh, one of the people in the uh, uh, council area who witnessed a wounded knee, and his account is in the book. Mm -hmm. And what is the meaning of, I mean, when all guns fired at one time, kind of tactically, what does that, what does that mean? Well, that means what the perspective was on what happened was that all the guns, that is the Army guns, yeah. fired at once into the people. Now, that's... Uh, not uh, necessarily uh, the way the, the, uh, the massacre uh, erupted in the council area, mm -hmm. uh, but that's uh, what the people remembered, that all the guns fired at one time. And several accounts say that many of the guns went off at one time after uh, there was a, a little disturbance with uh, one young man uh, who did not want to relinquish his uh, weapon. Mm -hmm. And he resisted uh, one or two sergeants who tried to uh, take it from him as the uh, council proceeded. And uh, the gun finally went off, and that uh, triggered everybody rushing for cover. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and apparently all the Many, many of the uh, soldier guns all fired into uh, the Indians at one time, and that is the uh, I chose that as the title of for the book because right. I thought that kind of represented the native point of view of that incident. Right. Okay. We talked earlier about how the the testimonies change over time due to the person who's speaking due to the time that's, ela that's elapsed since the incident and, yes. and the audience that they would be speaking to as a part of that. Kind of along that vein, I'm wondering if you could speak to, say, a high school student, a college student who might be using this book to learn about the battle, to do research about the battle. How might you, what advice would you give them in how to use this book in the most productive way? Well, to comment on, on your your remark that uh, there were kind of two two categories mm -hmm. in the accounts that I saw. Uh, the earliest ones of Wounded Knee uh, reflected the personal and family elements of the of what happened, this tragedy, for posterity among the Lakota people, as well as for the uh, edification of of us non-Indians, I think mm -hmm. those early views um, are are one thing, and then later views, I should say, point uh, came out in the uh, early 1900s and especially in the 1930s, and they reflected efforts to, uh, I believe, to gain federal recognition and monetary compensation for the wounded knee losses. Mm -hmm. Uh, so there's there's a there's a difference of purpose in the the first accounts from the second accounts. And what was the other part of your question? Well, and you were you were leading right into it. How oh. does a somebody who wants to 
look at this for research purposes or just to, for a fuller understanding, exactly. how should they distinguish between those two types of accounts? What What's the meaning and why is there a difference and what might you want to look out for if you're trying to understand the, the massacre? Well, I, I think that you've got to look at all the accounts and then separate them, segregate them in your mind as you're going through them as to which they uh, pertain to. The government documents on uh, a Wounded Knee are a major part of this story. Mm -hmm. But they also include some medical diaries, which I've included and have never appeared in print before, okay. and accounts regarding the treatment of the wounded. Um, so the, the, a government document should not be ignored simply because they contain a government perspective. There are also uh, native accounts included in uh, published go government documents, uh, as you'll see. Another uh, uh, area is newspaper accounts. Mm -hmm. And uh, both in the weeks as well as the months uh, that followed directly on Wounded Knee, um, a number of reminiscent accounts of participants, uh, native accounts uh, provided by uh, relatives of those people who uh, took part at Wounded Knee. I'm talking about the Lakota people mm -hmm. uh, that appeared occasionally in the press through decades uh, following Wounded Knee and perhaps into the even into the 1960s and 70s. Wow. I think I've got one late account in there um, that resulted from uh, some of these came from online searches that I did on the Internet uh, using names and other clues that would pop them up. <clears throat> but uh, other accounts, I'd say early and later accounts by Lakota survivors, uh, from the, often often from the women and grown sons and daughters who were present on the scene, uh, because most of the adult males were killed there. Most yeah. of those people did not die, uh, did not survive, and so. Uh, their wives and their daughters and sons later uh, spoke in some of these accounts. Um, if for somebody's looking for accounts, uh, I suggest that uh, the um, Judge Eli Ricker papers at the Nebraska State Historical Society, um, now known as History Nebraska. Uh, okay, yes. I, my guess is that all of these are available in uh, published books now, either mine or uh, a good selection. I know it's in the Richard Jen Jensen book, uh, The Inter Indian Interviews of, of Ricker, and that was uh, came out in about early 2000s by the University of Nebraska Press. Um, there are also university collections, college collections, and I would urge students to uh, visit Black Hills State University. Uh, and in fact, uh, I got uh, some great material out of the Thomas O'Dell collection at Black Hills State in uh, Spearfish. Okay. Another uh, primary uh, repository is the Walter Mason Camp collection, and that is at the university. 
Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. The camp manuscripts exist at the, uh, I have a list of them here, the Lilly Library at Indiana University in Bloomington, and the Robert Ellison and Walter Camp papers at the Denver Public Library. Yeah. Um, also in South Dakota, uh, the special collections at the University of South Dakota in Vermilion, um, and they contain uh, that uh, facility contains the Wounded Knee Survivor Association papers. All right. Um, the Fra Francis H. Case papers mm -hmm. at the uh, George and Eleanor McGovern Library at Dakota Wesleyan in Mitchell. And finally, my dear friend, Mike Hermeny Horses, um, who I who I could I could not have written either of these books without my dear friend Michael who passed away two years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a wonderful guy. Uh, his papers um, that I got borrowed from his uh, collection. I don't know if they're available, but perhaps through the uh, Oglala Lakota College uh, on the reservation okay. there. And uh, for any anything else, I would uh, suggest uh, that students look at the bibliography of my book, American Carnage. Right. I would point one other thing out to you. Um, perhaps the some of these people lived for decades after Wounded Knee, and I was absolutely flabbergasted to learn about a lady named Jesse Running Horse on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Now, she was two years old in 1890 hmm. when she came south with her parents um, accompanying Bigfoot's group. Can you believe that she died in 1977 wow. at Pine Ridge? Mm -hmm. And she was... Uh, either the last or among the last survivors of the Lakotas to survive Wounded Knee. And that that just knocked me for a loop when right. I found reference to her. Right. I would have loved to have met her. What a wonderful lady she must have been. Mm -hmm. Well, Jerry, um, just to kind of wrap up here, I think uh, given the, as you've gone through the extensive research that you've done just by kind of highlighting uh, a bit of a bibliography here for your two books on this. What is the, as we would take this into the future and might be confronted with a very tense situation in the future, either between nations or groups or among two people who happen to be neighbors, um, what is the question that one could ask in order to have a far better result than the one that occurred in December of 1890 in this situation. In other words, not necessarily is there a lesson that kind of immediately translates over, but what is the question about how to think about one might be uh, confronted in a similar situation in the future? I'd say listen. Uh, we have better ways of listening today than they had back in those days. Mm -hmm. um, 
keep your eyes and ears open and uh, and try to get along. Mm-hmm. I uh, I mm-hmm. can't uh, think of anything but trying to uh, trying to coexist with our fellow men, and uh, hopefully we do it in a better way today than they did back then when uh, communication uh, was uh, was not as uh, good as it supposedly is today. Right. Well, Jerry, um, thanks a lot for your, your joining us today. We certainly appreciate it, and we certainly thank you for this great accomplishment of a book and uh, all the other writings that you've provided. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Well, we'd like to thank our sponsor, the South Dakota Historical Society Foundation, and our partner of the 605 podcast, South Dakota Public Broadcasting. But most importantly, we'd like to thank you, our listener to the show. If you enjoyed it, I hope you'll share on social media and tell your friends about us. Now go do some history.